And now, coming to you live from the Grisham Room, high above the Cooch Street Motel 6, this is Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Cooch Street Podcast. And here it is, December already, and we've not, uh, we've not set up. Uh, it's, well, uh, apologies to listeners who might have wanted more uh, podcasts than, than we provided this year. And apologies to listeners who might have wanted fewer podcasts than we provided this year. So either way, we can apologize. Fair enough. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. I can think of a bunch of things we probably should. Well, that's probably true as well. <laughs> so how are you? I'm doing well. It is getting closer to the end of the year. And I suppose, as you, I've been thinking about the year in review essay and thinking about the spring, what, what we're expecting to see in January and February, what we're looking forward to. Um, and we'll probably be doing our year-end sort of wrap-up thing once the recommended list is compiled, which I know you're in the middle of compiling now and working on. Um, and I, well, but I was thinking also that uh, when we're looking forward to books next year, the book that everybody is looking forward to for good reason is Kelly Link's The Book of Love. Sure. And it occurred to me that that I, I've seen the advanced publicity material on that. I've seen the cover and so forth and so on. Now, it's Kelly Link. So, of course, everybody expects it to be brilliant. And it is. As you know, I've read it. I think it is a brilliant novel. But Kelly is one of a handful of writers from our camp who can get the full general fiction treatment. I don't, want to, I don't like to use the term literary fiction because I think that's... Uh, a loaded term, but the general fiction, they want it to be a bestseller. So it's being marketed to a general fiction audience. Now, historically, there've only been a handful of writers who kind of came out of our genre who could get marketed that way. Right now, for example, Silvio Moreno Garcia gets marketed and sold as mainstream and it works very well. Um, I'm sure that uh, Carmen Maria Machado's books get that kind of treatment, um, probably a handful of other people. So I guess one of the things that I, I find vaguely irritating, uh, and this has nothing to do with the literary quality, is that by and large, people in our field will embrace things that are uh, not marketed as science fiction or fantasy, but are sold that way. In other words, a novel like uh, Emily St. John. Mandel's The Sea of Tranquility got a lot of attention from the science fiction community, even though, as far as I could tell, the publicist didn't particularly care whether it did or not. Um, so so it's, it's not something that's new. It's a complaint that it's a one-way permeable barrier. It's very difficult for a writer from any, with any genre associations to get that kind of mainstream publicity. But on the other hand, mainstream, I hate to use that term too, but general fiction writers will be at least engaged with by our community, Margaret Atwood being the classic example. Um, so now, this is a debate I know that goes back to the days when uh, Bradbury and Ellison and um, Vonnegut were saying, you have to escape the labels or you're uh, doomed forever. I think those days are over. But what made me think of this is there are two novels I got promo letters on. I'd never heard of them, never heard of the authors. The promo letters say nothing really about speculation, and they both sound kind of interesting. So yeah. 
I'm putting these two titles and see if any of our listeners have heard of them in the pile of what I'm now calling books that I wasn't looking forward to, but maybe I should have been because nobody told me about them. Um, yeah. One is a novel called The Moon of the Turning Leaves, and I'm probably going to butcher the author's name, but it seems to be Wabgeshig Rice, uh, and it's an indigenous uh, post-apocalyptic uh, novel, a sequel to another novel, which never came to my attention. It might be very interesting uh, to the likes of us, uh, but I don't think anybody was planning on letting the likes of us even know about it. It's inter- interesting, though, because there are signals you know, in it. I mean, since you've mentioned it, and I should say, listeners, that mm. you mentioned to me less than 10 minutes ago, right. I noticed that you know the, the, the quotes that come with the book come from people like Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, right. who is strongly genre-adjacent, so to some degree is signaling both to her mm. own uh, large you know, readership, but also to the genre that here there is something that maybe lies along you know, space you might be interested in. And there's actually, as you say, always been a lot of this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I, mean, it's, I, I wonder, I mean, is this different from what, say, our colleagues James Bradley and Ian Mond would talk about? Uh, where they'll say to you that the best, most interesting science fiction work being done today is being done outside the the, uh, the boundaries of the official field, and if you look at you know like the twenty twenty three year, a, a number of the books either were that were the most interesting proved to have come from either outside the field directly, or almost outside. I mean, a book mm. like Conquest by Nina Allen is almost from out the, outside the field. Martin McInnes's In Ascension was published outside the field. Francis mm. Bufford's Hercule Buffett. Jazz, uh, you know, the, the Deluge by Stephen Markey, published outside the field by and large. But all science fiction books, one and all. No, you know, so- and I, I, I think that's both a fair and an unfair uh, position to take. That uh, there was a essay years ago. Uh, it's, it's a it's, it's, it's a sentence that Peter Straub wrote, and we did, we did a special essay, essay on horror fiction maybe 15 years ago at Locus. And he was asked to look at the state of the horror field. Now, this is a field I know nothing about, but Peter knew about it. And the sentence that he wrote that I thought was interesting and echoes what you just said was, horror is a house that horror has moved out of. Um, <laughs> which, maybe. when you think, it's, it's pretty pretty astute, I thought. Well, I mean, it's a... It's a interesting case study in some of what what you're alluding to in the sense that it is far more uh, lucrative, I would think, for a horror novel to be marketed as a literary novel that happens to be scary than for it to be a horror novel. Right. And I think this is true when you look at, I don't know, uh, Victor Laval, for example, who's had very, um, very, very good literary success with what, uh, you know, he, he began with, okay, uh, non-genre stuff, but he's somebody who knows his way around the field. Clearly, that's true. Uh, and Stephen King is his own thing. I think we yeah. have to make a distinction. There's a there's a third category here because we're talking about general fiction, in which I include literary fiction. We're talking about genre fiction, which is a very constrictive term. And when you mention Sylvia Moreno Garcia, that's a third category, which is bestsellers. If you're a New York Times bestseller, you get a chance to blur books because that's basically 
a category of, of, of its own entirely. In other words, that's one of the arguments that we've heard for years, that Stephen King doesn't belong to the horror genre. Stephen King belongs to the Stephen King genre. Uh, and he can write mysteries. He can write fantasies. He can write mainstream historical stuff. He can write all sorts of things uh, that will have horrible things in them. But nobody worries about assigning yeah. a genre label to him. Um, as, as far as the best science fiction coming from outside of science fiction, I don't think that's true, but I think that, again, it's a very permeable kind of uh, barrier, if it's a barrier at all. True. I'll also say that with the, the, the Rice novel that, you, that you've highlighted, Moon of the Turning Leaves, which mm. is a February title uh, next year, they do signal pretty hard to you. I mean, in this gripping standalone literary thriller, bit of a tag. Yeah, exactly. Set in the, Set in the world of the award-winning post-apocalyptic novel, post-apocalyptic novel, they're signaling and they're signaling semi-hard that, you know, if you like all that kind of uh, The Last of Us kind of stuff, yeah. this, is your, this is your thing. But we're not going to put anything shambling on the cover. There's just one of those sort of autumnal early night sky with a bright light in it kind of yeah. Uh, post-apocalyptic i would argue is its own genre too it sort of touches about it can be fantasy it can be horror it can be mainstream it can be you don't know what it is like in cormac mccarthy's the road it can be science fiction um and and it's it's a sales term by itself you're right people who like the last of us people who like uh the walking dead uh it's it's it's, it's this broad range of everything from extremely literary fiction uh, like Cormac McCarthy to, you know, formula zombie movies. Um, mm. So, so that kind of thing I think is, as a matter of fact, I was thinking I was watching a movie on television the other night, which I, last night, which I thought was pretty good uh, called leave the world behind again, based on a novel I did not know about. Yep. Um, and one of the things I liked about it, it's a pretty good film is that it's not post-apocalyptic. It's actually apocalyptic. You get to see the apocalypse <laughs> happening. I was thinking, I am done with post-apocalyptic. Let's go back to pre-apocalyptic. Let's have actual apocalypses now. Uh, I don't know. Aren't apocalypses old hat, Gary, or are they just, is everything old new again? It is, but is everything post? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, you can understand the attraction of post-apocalyptic fiction in uh, the early 2020s, Gary, it'd be nice to get the apocalypse behind you and see maybe, hopefully, something decent happening. Well, I, my argument going back to uh, the the first wave of popular science fiction apocalypses, there were there were always apocalyptic novels. There was going back to Mary Shelley's The Last Man, you know, the end of the world novels. And then there were flood novels in the 20s and 30s. There was S. Fowler writes the deluge. There have always been individual apocalypses. But the first kind of self-defined genre apocalypse was, science, was I think, post-war, mostly American, post-war British and American science fiction mostly. And probably to the extent that I knew anything about post-war European or Asian or African science fiction, maybe there as well. But once you had the nuclear holocaust as a theme, yeah, uh, then you had novel after novel after novel. And I read a bunch of these. And my thought about that uh, genre was that it was a way of reinventing the Western. It was a way of reducing civilization to pre, uh, yeah. pre-industrial times, essentially. 
you had an arena for heroic action. A lot of those novels looked like looked like medieval chivalric romances or mm-hmm. hard-boiled detective stories or, 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 or westerns. Um, and, and so that's part of the appeal. I think that's always been part of the appeal. Yeah. And there's, 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 yeah. there's a kind of elitist absolutism about returning the world to a state where those of us who are competent will rise to the top as opposed to where we are now where bureaucrats rule everything. Anyway. Yeah. One thing I find interesting because these two books, and you'll mention the second, I'm sure, in a moment, uh, that you've meant you've come across. That one thing that strikes me is, at least to my eye, the covers and readers, if you go and look, you'll see, are utterly generic in their own way. There's yes, nothing, absolutely. That gives you nothing at all. I mean, these are covers that I would walk past in a bookstore and not turn my head towards. Uh, book, you know, ones that I would go past in a uh, library and not lift off the shelf, completely generic looking. And I think that's possibly because the kinds of covers, cover reveals we see all the time now in the genre uh, are, are coded toward uh, a certain readership. And these yeah. covers seem to me coded to say to that readership, these these covers seem to me to say to me, this is not for you science fiction people. This is just as generic and literary as you can. The the almost they're almost text only covers. Um, the other novel which I was going to mention by Scott Alexander Howard, another writer I've not read, is called The Other Valley, um, and it's an elegant and exhilarating literary speculative novel. See, there you go. Literary speculative novel. It may be speculative, but that's okay because it's literary. Or, oh, and or look, they, they, and they, they are signaling very hard to here because even though it's got an utterly generic cover, it starts yeah. off for fans of David Mitchell, Ruth Ozeki, and Kazuo Ushiguro. Now, I'm sure it reads nothing like any of them. I'm sure it doesn't either, and I'm, I'm trying to visualize the person who is a particular fan of those three people, but that's another question. Well, maybe it's one of those things where it's like, oh, well, they so-and-so writes well, and that one's work is wacky, and maybe that'll give me something that I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen this, like I say, uh, we've seen this sort of thing a lot before. Yeah, uh, You see it on Emily St. John Mandel's novels and that sort of thing. The conceit of this, I gather, it's an isolated town, neighbored on one side by the same town 20 years in the future, and neighbored on the other side by the same town 20 years in the past, which sounds like a, it, it, it's, it sounds like a not quite precious uh, fantasy uh, conceit that's used to generate all kinds of game playing later on. It's a little bit, it, it belongs a little bit to the tradition of villages that are next to something else. Usually it's villages that are next to fairyland. Maybe it's, villages that are next to a forbidden uh, walled-off area. But, you know, it, it's, it could be cute. It sounds like it could be fun. And for, from a writer's point of view, playing with those things uh, could be very entertaining. But that's a fantasy novel. By very definition, the setup is fantasy. And you will not see the word fantasy anywhere. And for that matter, I don't think I'd include fantasy in the term speculative fiction anyway. 
Why not, Gary? Because fantasy isn't speculating about stuff. Fantasy is making stuff up. Okay. Um, I have this feeling that if we were to break down that assertion, I'm not sure it would entirely hold up that there's no speculative nature to uh, fantasy. I'm not sure that that's that, I didn't order there. Jay. I did not quite say that there's no speculative aspect to fantasy. If you say if I'm, I'm saying I'm not sure fantasy is a subset of speculative fiction. I would make an argument that historical fiction is purely a subset of speculative fiction. Science mm -hmm. fiction is a subset of speculative fiction. Fantasy can speculate within the parameters it lays out for itself, but those parameters do not need to be speculative. But doesn't the term speculative fiction just mean the person saying it was embarrassed to say science fiction and fantasy, so they came up with something else? Well, you know, the person who came up with the term, as far as I can determine, was Robert Heinlein, um, yeah. who wrote an essay in 1947. Talking, and he was exactly doing what you're saying. He was trying to avoid the term science fiction because yeah. even in the 40s, Heinlein knew that this was going to go nowhere in terms of uh, you know, yeah. his career anyway. Or his, um, but, but yeah, I mean, Speculation, speculation. There's a new speculation. word. Speculation. No, no, speculation. no, 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 no. Okay. You can take, um, let's say, um, okay, let's take one of Heinlein's. I think it was Heinlein's idea. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, maybe it was Asimov. The idea of the the three story types being what if, if only, and if this goes on. Um, and if this goes on, is speculation based on the actual world uh, as we know it. If something, it's, it's usually an awful warning to it, the story. Um, if, uh, if only and what if permit both fantasy and science fiction, if only people, you know, could breathe underwater, whatever. Um, uh, if, what, 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 what if, uh, well, okay, good example of what if. Uh, Greg yeah. Egan says, what if we change the wavelength of light? What kind of a universe? That's pure science fiction. But you can also say, what if animals could talk, which is pure fantasy. Uh, so it, traditionally pure fantasy. I don't want to hear from people who say, oh, yeah, we can communicate with animals. My point is this, that uh, speculative fiction, traditionally, you're right, was a way of avoiding saying science fiction. And now it's become a way of the general fiction marketing crowd Yep. say, it's okay, this is not science fiction, even though everything in it is science fiction. Yes. I mean, I've been clicking around because I, I was just curious about something as well in the background. I mean, there are three fat fantasy novels that are coming out in 2024 that I'm looking forward to reading. Okay. Um, the Book of Love by Kelly Link, mm -hmm. which is a fat fantasy novel. Yes, it is. The Bright Sword by Lev Grossman which is a fat fantasy novel mm -hmm. and novel by Paolo Bacigalupi, which is a fat fantasy novel. Yeah. It, it's, it's the Godfather with dragons. Whereas the and Grossman is, is an Arthurian novel. Uh, and of course the book of love is what it is, but it's interesting. The publisher tags book of love as contemporary fantasy. Uh, the Bacigalupi novel is epic fantasy. The Arthurian book is epic fantasy and literary fiction. And really? when, oh yeah, yeah, it's tagged as literary fiction. The link we're talking about, 
the long-awaited debut novel from best-selling author and Pulitzer Prize winner, or fi- finalist Kelly Link, as we sit here and we signal to you how credible this is because Pulitzer Prize finalist. So mm-hmm. you can read it if you're a science fiction person, but um, really it's for the main audience. And the main, the main yeah. genre audience. And these are marketing things, but nothing to do with what Kelly or Paolo or uh, Lev no. have written that shouldn't be in any way considered relevant, particularly to the books. Um, the for the the Grossman, they just go go all in and just refer to you know like uh, to a triumphant reimagining of, of the Arthurian legend. The Bacha Galupi, though, is New York Times bestseller, returns with a sleeping a sweeping literary fantasy. Anyway, mm. so we're trying to push this outside of again. I mean, his books, which you know, the wind up girl and the water knife, sold if they if they pushed outside of the standard genre audience, it was because of their uh, appeal to people interested in apocalyptic and uh, fiction of fiction about the Anthropocene. Uh, so there's looking for that, that same kind of way out without actually sort of necessarily finding it. Now with these books that, you, that you're talking about, which are like off, off the traditional locus radar, you might right, say. Exactly. Exactly. Though, though I think we're much better at capturing now than we were five years ago. We have reviewers on staff who are, looking at some of these kind of books on a regular basis. So that make, gives us a little bit of an, an, a, you know, a, a leg in. But we're still well, I, sort of... Yeah. No, ab- ab- absolutely. And I'll take the opportunity to plug a fellow reviewer at Locus because Ian Mond reads a lot of books that I first learned about by reading Ian's columns. And I, I think it's, it, it, it's fascinating that this goes on. I think with a Kelly Link uh, situation... I can't blame the marketing people. They pretty much know that anybody who's involved with science fiction and fantasy over the last 20 years is going to go out and get the first Kelly Link novel. That's a given. They don't need to worry about the likes of us because, of course, we've been waiting for it. If Ted Chang were to write a novel... I don't uh, think that's true. You don't think that's true? No, I think it's anybody who ever loved any of her short stories. But if I mean, I know you didn't mean it as sweepingly as you said it, I don't think. Hmm. But anybody who's read 10 uh, uh, Robert Jordan novels is not necessarily interested in going out and picking up the Book of Love. Anybody who's reading all kinds of uh, reading all kinds of science fiction and fantasy will have and but who had no interest in reading uh, any of uh, Kelly's short story collections probably aren't particularly interested in okay. any more interested in this. No, that's true. But, that's true. Kelly Link has not attracted the whole spectrum of, let's say, Robert Jordan readers. Um, and for that matter, uh, some Ted Chang hasn't either, or Greg Egan, for that matter. There, but my point is there is a broad base of Kelly Link readers. And you're right. It's not simply genre readers. It's not simply fantasy and science fiction people. Um, but there, she has a following. She has a distinct following, which is built up deservedly over uh, – what, three-story collections now, uh, most recent one on less than a year ago. So those, you're, th- th- those people are locked in. Uh, I think the marketing on the novel probably has to focus on people who maybe have read one or two Kelly Link stories. Um, because if you, this is one of the interesting things also. If you're not reading anthologies like Best of the Year right. or story collections, how do you encounter a single Kelly Link story? Uh, yeah. Most people are not reading. Most most people did not read uh, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. Uh, they might uh, see a story here and there, but by and large, I think most of the following of Kelly Link comes from people who have 
historically been at least fantasy and science fiction and maybe horror fans. Can I just say, there's a lot of talk about AI and algorithms around the place. And whilst looking at the Book of Love, because we're talking about the Book of Love, which you have or will review in the next issue of Locus, or have reviewed in the next issue of Locus, and which will begin to find its way out into the world in the next month or two, or two months, uh, the publisher's website kicks out the, you know, if you like the Book of Love, you might also like dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And I sat there and my, my jaw kind of hit the floor, Gary because they refer to a book called Dragon's Wild by Robert Esprin as a book that you might enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're like, um, okay, that's an interesting stretch. That's, 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 that's I, I don't, I, that's like, if you like 2001, you'll like Popeye. Um, <laughs> what I what, uh, I, 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 guess. I, I realize comparables are the big deal in in, in publishing these days. They you are. have to find, uh, and but 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 this sounds to me like something an AI would have come up with. Very much, very much, very much. So, I mean, okay, this is the, the moment where I, I will I will say because you only introduced this idea to me of books we should be looking forward to that we aren't aware of mm -hmm. right before the podcast. I've got nothing to contribute in terms of other books that might or might not sit in that space. I suppose one of the questions I would ask, and it does sort of begin to like gather up this idea of how blurbs and comparables are put together and everything else is how does a reader in your opinion, hope to find these other books that sit on the periphery of the genre um, particularly at a time when books have never been more expensive, probably, or feel like they've yeah, never been more expensive, right. and where, you know, when you look at what's being lauded, some of, you know, the best, what's considered the best work in the field by people is happening in that space. You know, if you look at what, I mean, if the group of people who happen to vote for the Locus Award, the Locus Recommended Reading, the actual panel, you know, has any sort of value, right? their opinions, a lot of the work they're interested in is in this space. A lot of it. So yeah. how do how can readers hope to find it? That's kind of the question I'm raising. I mean, because readers, general readers, don't get promo letters like I don't. And in and, 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 and all honesty, most of the promo letters I get are for things that I'm not remotely interested in and that are very generic. Uh, but by and large when you've got a kind of crypto thing going on at the edges of the genre, and we have, we do review these occasionally, Ian reviews them. There are books that become um, bestsellers that I know nothing about. Rebecca Yaros has had number one, <clears throat> number one and two New York Times bestsellers for a while. A few years ago, I reviewed a novel by V.E. Schwab, which is The Invisible Lives of Addie LaRue, not published as science fiction. Somehow I, you know, I stumbled across it. It's, it's fine. I don't think, I, th I think one of the things that uh, confuses readers is yeah. that by and large novels like that tend not to be in dialogue with what we consider the great dialogue of fantasy and science fiction. Um, in other words, they come out of the blue. I mean, when, you, when I looked at this um, Scott Alexander Howard novel, The Other Valley, I thought, that could be a conceit for a Neil Gaiman novel, easily enough. Uh, it's a it's a fantasy idea, but <clears throat> is it somebody who's interested in the traditions in which this narrative 
falls? Uh, is it somebody who's even interested in, is Emily St. John Mandel interested in the science fiction traditions within her novels? I don't know. I'm going to throw an element of skepticism into this space here and, and, and put this to you. A number of times in the past when someone has written a book that's supposed to sit outside the dialogue of the field, mm-hmm. when we actually get to talk to those people, we find that they are very much engaged with and interested yes, in knowledge right. about the field. And they feel like they're writing in dialogue with the field entirely. So are we erroneously making a mis- making an assumption that because the packaging and marketing on a book look, looks like it is not in dialogue with the field, the text itself is not? You're absolutely right. And I would stand corrected if I implied that we were talking about the author's intent rather than the marketing intent. Sometimes, well, I, mean, I mean, the text itself, forget the author's intent, but whether the text itself reads as though, because I mean, surely that's the, 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 the thing that we, that when we talk about this, we try to talk about, not the marketing, not the packaging, not even the author's right. intent, which half the time you can't know because they don't go around saying so. Um, isn't, isn't it sort of what's on the page? I no, I, I agree with that, and I think, but I think there's another factor that works into it, and that is how how much of what's on the page is knowledgeably in dialogue with something or with some version of something. Let me give an example of Margaret Atwood, uh, who was sort was, was skeptically received by the science fiction world um, when The Handmaid's Tale first came out. We later found out. Of course, she wrote a book on science fiction. She had written a lot of science fiction. She liked science fiction a lot. She was a huge admirer of Le Guin. But she hadn't actually read any science fiction for about 50 years uh, until she started reading Le Guin again. So her that novels... sounds like a lot of science fiction writers, Gary. <laughs> well, that's true, too. Uh, but, but a lot of her stuff is in dialogue with an idea of sure. the field that she... That, that's a little bit outdated, but it, it grew up with. It doesn't affect the novel at all. Uh, and then you have to consider the fact that if these things are being read and uh, widely read by people who know nothing about the history of science fiction or fantasy or horror, and they enjoy it in perfectly well, then does that dialogue make any difference at all? Does it? You know, is is that just an inside joke? I've seen novels uh, by general fiction writers that clearly include nuggets for science fiction and fantasy readers. Uh, and they know perfectly well that the probably the majority of the readership is not going to pick up on these little Easter eggs. But you know, they're having fun. And I cannot blame a writer at all for being touted as a best-selling, innovative, speculative writer who has nothing to do with those people over there in the corner. Um, and no. if it's going to sell more copies, more power to them. Um, and if these books become bestsellers, I have no problem with that at all. Um, I mean, on one hand, how do you find the books? You you know, yeah. You pay attention, I suppose. You read people like Ian Mont when he reviews them. You follow some of the mainstream papers when they review their stuff and read between the lines when they code their reviews. And when it comes to the dialogue, I've also wondered if more often on the, than not, that's on a macro scale with the text rather than a micro scale. What I mean by that is it's not so much the detail of what's in the book as the broad way a book will deal with themes and as they change and so you can see over a period of time different approaches mm-hmm. and back and forths in say conversation around military science fiction and whatever's happened is how you go from Heinlein to Haldeman yeah and so on 
um, but they're, they're macro, not micro connections. And I think sometimes the dialogue of the field discussion, and by that I mean the discussion about the dialogue of the field, uh, presented as being a much more direct conversation than it is when it's more of an evolutionary conversation. I think it's evolutionary in terms of now, now. Now we're having to make a distinction between the broad readership of science fiction and fantasy and the self-identified, well, fandom basically. Um, and yeah. and this is this is an argument we've talked about before, and it's a it's a point that I remember. Uh, I used to get into arguments with Brian Aldous about this, who was somebody who spent most of his literary career being a very successful science fiction writer who really wanted to be a very successful. Mainstream. He wanted. He wanted to get the Booker Prize. He he wanted to be one of those people, and his argument was always that fandom has been the best thing and the worst thing that happened to science fiction. Yeah, because if it it, it encouraged the field to be ingrown, to to to, to be navel gazing, to create to to, to 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 do what we now call audience service or readership service, uh, and that increasingly isolated the field from the literary world, and he claim to have seen this much more dramatically in England uh, than we did here in the States, but I'm not sure that's, that, that's correct. So to some extent, yeah, to some extent, science fiction defining itself or fantasy defining itself as being part of a grand tradition is a way of sealing itself off from the rest of, of literature in a way that could be unhealthy for it. Yes, I can see that. Yes. I'm not saying I've got much to add in of substance to it as an observation, but I can well, see it. It's, it's, it's one of the arguments I used to, uh, one of the points I used to hear from various older writers. I don't know, I, I don't know what the statistics or figures are now at all, but I remember hearing people back in the 70s and 80s saying, you know, if you want to sell 20,000 copies of a book, write a science fiction novel, uh, but you won't ever sell 100,000 copies of it. But if you want to sell 5,000 copies of a novel, write a mainstream novel, but you might sell 100,000 copies. <laughs> you, you, you can guarantee a certain level of success with genre writing, but the chances of making it into the stratosphere are more remote for a genre writer than for a general fiction writer. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that that's true at all anymore. I don't know if it was true then, but it was common advice given to young writers. So... In amongst this space is this whole feeling that we, we get this this time of the year, and long term listeners are very familiar with the that you know the mm. various phases of things here, and it is that that end of the year thing. As you sit down to write your end of year summary, you know, uh, do you find there are any observations you feel about the field that you've noticed, or I mean, because I mean, what we what I do, uh, and I know you've done it too is you sort of write a thing where you kind of go, uh, oh, I haven't read enough to, to uh, talk about overall trends. Uh, this is just you know, one, one, one reader's view, et cetera, et cetera. But do you get a feel for, any, you know, for, for different kinds of work you're seeing? Um, I, I, I'm going to spoil some of my year in review column, but that's okay because nobody will read it and it won't be out until February anyway. Um, but... One of the yeah, I, I, I did notice a, a couple of things. One is there are a couple of uh, important novels that I read that are uh, that are not genre novels, but are being read by genre people, and they're completely different kinds of novels. I mean, one mm -hmm. which we've talked about before, 
is Nicola Griffith's Meanwood, which is a long historical novel, which has reads like a fantasy. It's completely immersive, but it's a historical novel. It doesn't have supernatural stuff in it. It doesn't have, it's just very, very well done and fairly simple in plot. The other one, almost at the opposite end of the spectrum, is the Cory Doctorow novel um, Red Team Blues, which is yep. basically a, a, it's basically a detective story about a forensic yep. accountant. It doesn't it doesn't belong in the field either. But they're both novels. In the case of the Doctorow novel, if you like Doctorow's tech savvy, you know, yes. really yes. knowledgeable, I mean, Doctorow is like I said, I've said this before. He's like Asimov. He's a really good explainer, and like Asimov, he's maybe sometimes. He's yeah. Bruce Sterling Jr. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, in other words, people who like that whole tradition, the, 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 and especially Dr. Ozone novels, of course they're going to enjoy it. They're not going to mind that it's not science fiction any more than a good fantasy reader would mind that Meanwood is. Uh... Okay, another observation I had. Uh, this, these are just completely random observations. There were like four or maybe five novels and at least one or two short stories I read this year in which a Leicester Crowley shows up or is referred to or is mm -hmm. uh, a, a hidden secret. So it's like he's uh, he, he's been showing up in these things for years. He was in a China. So I don't know if that means anything, that people are just fascinated. But the interesting thing is that Crowley is becoming kind of the multicultural icon of really creepy occultists because... Silvia Marina Garcia, a novel that de deals with Mexican film history, dealt with it. Shows up in Wole Talabi's uh, Shigidi and the Brasshead of a Volophon, which deals with Yoruba mythology. Shows up in, I think, one of the T. King Fisher novels and something else. So there, there, there's this kind of, I don't know whether that means anything or not, but, you know, here's somebody who's been around as a kind of bit player in fantasy forever. Now he's kind of, you know, Sneaking on the stage of novels from all over the world. I think it's kind of cool. Didn't the same thing happen with John Dee a few years ago? Yes, John Dee. Uh, in, in fact, and John Crowley had written a novel about John Dee and several other people did. So they're, they're like these secret masters of uh, fantasy characters that <laughs> recurring again and again and again. Um, um, yeah. There were two. Okay, here's, here's another really weird observation. You mentioned Nina Allen's Conquest, which I thought actually was one of the best novels of the year. But both Nina Allen's Conquest and La Vie Tidar's The Circumference of the World center in part around fictional 1950s science fiction novels. So you have yes. two made-up science fiction novels which serve as MacGuffins in current science fiction novels. So there's, again, a kind of fascination with uh, how how science fiction corrupted all our imaginations, you know, 60 and 70 years ago uh, yeah. and how that's affecting us ever since. And I, as I say, those are only two novels that come to mind of the few that I read. And I'm sure had I read more and more short fiction, I could find more evidence of that. Given the practicalities of the world, how many books a human can read and everything else, to what extent do you feel like you're you're reading inside the field at the moment you know like there are books which are getting very uh, you know getting a lot of applause and nobody has the time to read them all you know i'm going to guess that you haven't read the new um 
and Lecky novel right now. We were talking about how you, how you, mm. how you haven't read Cahokia uh, Jazz. If not, it's a book I was looking at just a minute. A yeah, while I finally ago. was able to download it. And I haven't read the new Martha Wells novel either. And everything That's I've read fun. by these people has been terrific. Um, but I think one of the problems with being in the field, again, is, and we, we've, we talked about this years ago in the early days of the podcast, there yeah. are books that are so widely discussed in the field and so widely anticipated that you almost feel like you've read them before you see them. Uh, they're, they're, they're just part of the mainstream. So there's, yeah. there's a kind of core, uh, core writers in the field, and, and, and certainly uh, Anne Leckie has been one for some time. Martha Wells has been one for some time. Emily Tesh is now becoming one, I suspect. Um, and there's, there, these novels have so much buzz and so much discussion that you feel like, I don't have to read them now, but I have to read them sooner or later. Yes. Which, of course, is a problem for a reviewer because as soon as you get the stuff off your pile, there's another pile there. So finding time to read things that everybody else has read is, is a challenge. There, there is indeed a, a whole pile of stuff always piling up. And another group of interest, interesting new writers, because that's the other thing. I mean, I find this, and it's been a, it's, it's a, kind of like it's a frustration, uh, but it's also maybe part of the natural cycle of being a reader, and that is that you find a new uh, reader, writer, you read yeah. them as much as you can for, for a period of time, and then uh, something happens, and you have to read. You want to read the next group of people who are interesting, so you don't have time to read all of that stuff that you were reading before. So now you have to kind of go back and um, uh, work out what the hell you're going to do. Like, do you keep reading that person? Do they just fall by the wayside out of your your reading? You know, how do you how do you cope? And how how do you ever find the time to like go back? I mean, I, I can think of a number of people, and I don't feel overly disposed to mm-hmm. expose myself and say who they are, who have read little or nothing of, though I know they're supposed to be really good. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I think. Well, to some extent, again, you have to make a distinction between those of us who have to read a certain number of books and, and people who simply choose. But every, every choice, and I feel, uh, I feel this dilemma, even though it doesn't affect me as directly as it could, yep. that a new Martha Wells novel is going to be terrific fun. A new Anne Leckie novel is going to be uh, you know, very provocative. There, uh, I, I would look forward to uh, any number of new novels. You know, there, there's going to be you know, Nora Jemison, whatever. But there's a point at which you have to decide, am I going to read the third or fourth novel by somebody I like, or am I going to try out this novel by, let's say, P. Jolly Clark or Wooly Talabi and, and discover something new? And it's, 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 it's a dilemma. I mean, part of my, my impulse has always been to want to discover somebody. And if, I, with, if you ask me right now what author I remember discovering in 2023, Without giving a moment's thought to it, if I give a moment's thought to it, I'd be confused. But right now, I would say Wally Talabi. Based on that novel and based on some of the short fiction I'd read, and he won a Hugo Award and that sort of thing. But reading that novel by Wally Talabi, who I did not know anything about when I read it, meant not reading a novel by somebody I knew I would like. How do you make that decision? I don't know. Does it change when you get to know the people? Um, Maybe. Depends on how well you know them, I suppose. Um, no, but I mean, I think about it, like you, you've mentioned, like you mentioned Walla Walla at the lobby, right? Yeah. Uh, and by circumstances or happenstance, as you know, uh, he now lives here in Perth. 
Yes, I know. And so I've seen him a couple of times. So when you hang out, he's a person I know. So like I think about the person with the book in a way that I wouldn't normally. They're just sort of random names out there in the world. I've never, you know, people have never met, you know. Uh, and how you pick them, I think there's luck and happenstance. I mean, I didn't earlier in the year pick up uh, Chain Gang All Stars, mm. which is the um, Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. That's the first time I've tried to say that. I hope I got it right. And apologies if not. Novel. And that's their first novel. And I started to read it and it starts terrifically. I don't know how it continues, but it starts terrifically. And it's like, how do I find time to not miss that? I mean, there, there are a number of like, particularly on the first novels list, that's the novel list that at Locus I obsess about the most as a reader rather than mm-hmm. an editor or a reviewer. Um, it's like, who's this person? Have I heard of them? Why haven't I heard of them? What have they done? Um, what's their book like because that's where you're going to find you know the stuff that will surprise you and then you sort of let people go i mean i don't even want to say i mean like people who i read a decade's worth of novels and then it's like well i'll i'll i'll, I'll come back to them and then you never do and you, you can't make up that lost ground i don't think well there's a third category of things uh, especially when you get to be older which does happen to some of us uh that you see a lot of your colleagues rereading stuff from the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And you kind of get curious about that. Well, does, you know, does, I don't know, uh, does Cat's Cradle really hold up these days? I'd be curious to go back and read some of those things. I'd love to have the freedom to do that. But on the other hand, there, as, as you said, there are exciting new writers that you want to make room for, and something has to go by the wayside. Novels, writers that are good friends of mine, personal friends, I yeah. will keep up with out of friendship, and usually one of the reasons they're good friends is because they were good writers. In the first sure, sure, even sure, there, sure. Even there, I mean, let's, I will be honest, and if, if she gets mad at me, I don't think she will, but as much as I've read and enjoyed everything Elizabeth Hand has written, I lost track of the last couple of Castaneri novels. They weren't genre novels. I think she knows this anyway. But this is somebody, partly I read her again and again, partly because she's a friend, but largely because it's a completely reliable thing. It's going to be, every novel is going to be interesting, and you know that. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, given that choice between somebody who is a friend and somebody who I feel the same way about the novels, but I don't know, I'm probably yeah. going to opt for the friend. Fair enough. And I mean, look, I, I, I get that. I also begin to, you know, sort of get put off when I've not read somebody a little bit, I get put off by the, the square footage of shelf space. I need to catch up. I mean, I mean to have, I've read very little, um, Adrian Tchaikovsky, uh-huh. who's very well regarded and people whose opinion I respect say wonderful things about him. And he had a couple a couple of major science fiction novels out lately and fantasy novels, but it's like, there's, I'm now going to hold up my arms. It's really, really not useful. It feels like there's like a bookcase full of titles. I feel like I need to catch up with, and I, I tend to sort of shy away. It's like that's like too much. A first novelist only has one. Yeah, that's true. Which which, which makes it feel easier for me. Just <laughs> terrible. Well, that's that's true. It's easier to catch up with somebody who's only written one novel, but then you know, then they're going to come up with another one and a, and a collection of short stories and so forth and so on. I have to say that looking at the Wooly Talabi short stories uh, is very interesting, partly because of the way they're different from the novel. But 
to, to, to get back to the question of, of, of making a decision, it has to come down to individual readers' taste. There are readers sure. who uh, who want to find out what's new in the field, and that becomes an exciting thing, especially during the last 10 years, because what's new in the field is not just, let's say, um, well, let's say a Ray Naylor, who's very good, whose first novel I thought was terrific in all sorts of ways, um, whose no- second novella is, but uh, he's... He, he, he's another like American, well, not necessarily, but you know, he, he fits the mold of traditional science fiction writer in many ways. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. His stuff is terrific. But now I'm thinking, okay, in the last few years, there have been terrific stuff coming from a lot of different African writers, largely Nigeria, but not only Nigeria, yeah. from Korean writers, from Japanese writers, from Chinese writers. Uh, so, and you want to find out what's going on in these. Uh, in, in, in these different cultures because they're op- they're using science fiction to explore different traditions, which is a way of reinventing science fiction. Uh, so every time you look at, uh, well, uh, go, go back to Tolabi because he does this in the short fiction as well as his novels. You look at science fiction through the lens of Yoruba mythology or Yoruba mythology through the lens of science fiction is a new way of looking at science fiction. You look at yeah. it through the lens of um of any kind of post-colonial society, uh, which would include Korea, uh, that's a different lens. So part of this is wanting not just to be entertained, but wanting to think there's a lot of stuff about the history of science fiction that I don't know, even though I grew up reading it, and I've got to look at it now from all these different... So now you've got competing writers you like, writers who are your friends, writers who uh, are consistently good, even though you haven't read them, writers who are interesting and new, even though there's nothing culturally different about them, writers from radically different cultures, writers from different gender and, and, and uh, identities. Uh, and and so, so all of these things are different perspectives. Queer science fiction yep. is not the same as, um, as, as traditional astounding style of science fiction. But if you're interested in queer science fiction, you should probably go back and look at what Sturgeon was doing in the early 50s because there was... So in other words, everything leads to something else. And the bottom line is you can't possibly keep it up. You're never going to do... You're never going to read everything you want to read. So you probably ought to pick out a favorite mystery writer and just read all their stories, like your Adrian McKinty. Makes sense to me. Makes complete sense to me. I did that for years with Robert Parker. The one thing until he oh, died, shit. the one thing I could I could re- rely on, no matter what else I was reading, was there'd be a new Spencer novel sooner or later, and it'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess what we're saying is we can just give up this trying to keep up with things, give up following the field, because it's never going to work. Is that well, the, the thing message? is, to go back to our original point, that's not going to work. The original point was, finding out about things that might be interesting, even though they don't fit any of your pre-existing categories, which goes back to those two novels that I mentioned earlier. They might be terrific. They might not be terrific. But you have to know they're there. Yes, I think that's true. I think that that's a note we can wind up on. Because otherwise, I mean, we're, we're already tra- you know, traipsing into our year in review. We have not yes, done our special chatty episodes with other, other humans to refresh what we have to do. And I'll be honest, with Christmas coming down here at my house, at least, the amount of new reading I'm doing is minimal when I need to be doing a lot of it. 
Uh, it's not like I don't have things to read. I have an intimidating amount of stuff. Oh, yeah. To read I have the uh, same thing here. So um, instead, we'll sit around and watch our favorite Christmas movies. We may do that as well. I'm trying okay, to Gary. think. I, 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 we're just not going to say anything here at all. About, about what? Die Hard. We're not going to say anything about Die Hard, are we? It's a Christmas movie. Done. It's not a Christmas movie. The thing, the thing is a Christmas movie. There you go. Okay. All right. Best Christmas movie of all time, Gary? Miracle on 34th Street. That, hang on, that is the, the correct answer. That is the correct answer. You win a prize. All right. Thank you. Natalie Wood in her first movie. So much is right about that film. We were talking about it last night. Yes. If Sophie was here, she would be running around... Yeah, uh, parading because it's exactly the right answer. All of the performances are terrific. It is a screenplay that I think was won an Oscar, which has exactly one line you'd change to make it uh, update it to 2024 and have it be completely uh, contemporary. Uh, the, the cast is terrific. It's astonishing that uh, the actor who plays Santa Claus was the Santa Claus in the Macy's parade that year. Edmund right? Gwen. Edmund, because they just filmed, they put him in it and just filmed just, the exactly Macy's parade. Right. Which is and off the charts. So, and the I'm, I'm, okay, we're in agreement. Finally, everybody I mean, give up and give up reading science fiction and fantasy for the Christmas season and go watch America. Go watch America. Thirty Country, which is a great almost genre film. Almost, yes. Maybe a genre film. Might be. The ambiguity, the ambiguity is what makes the film work. Perfect. We watch it every year. All right. But my favorite, my favorite ridiculous fun fact was it tells you how the world has changed, right? So when the movie comes out, they hold a big um, screening for the Macy's staff. They shut Macy's on 34th Street, right? You know how many people went, Gary? Mm -hmm. That is 3,000 staff running that store. Wow. And I can tell you, we went there. As you know, listeners, my family and I were in the United States in uh, November, and Sophie and I went to Macy's. We went to the, we rode the one escal wooden escalator that still survives from still the old there? store. In the back. You bet. I bought my daughter Jessica a, a, a bucket of pickle flavored fairy floss. <laughs> That's Christmas for you, Gary. That is the perfect note to end on. I will talk to you next time. We will talk. Uh, we, we, we will talk soon, and maybe we'll have a guest soon. But until all that happens, and, and assuming we'll do something before the holidays, but maybe not. But until we come back, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>